0: Hello, you're listening to the Social Protection Podcast. Over the next two months, we're hosting a special six part series that asks Has COVID 19 marked a turning point for social protection? It will take a detailed look at the effectiveness of social protection responses across the globe and the implications for policies and systems in the longer term. The series is brought to you by ODI and GIZ. In partnership with socialprotection.org. And we are very excited to welcome Francesca Bastagli as our guest host for the series. Francesca is the Director of the Equity and Social Policy Programme and Principal Research Fellow at ODI. So, over to her, and we'll be back in your feed with a regular episode in August.
1: Hello, I'm Francesca Bastagli, and I'll be your host on today's and the next five episodes of the Social Protection Podcast. COVID-19 has brought new attention to social protection. The number of measures adopted across countries worldwide since the onset of the pandemic is unprecedented as countries have stepped up efforts to contain the effects of the health threat of movement restrictions and job losses. But COVID-19 has also exposed social protection gaps and inequities. Some of the population groups most negatively affected by the crisis are also those excluded from or underserved by social protection. These six episodes are part of an ODI research project funded by GIZ that asks, how effective have these responses been, especially for some of those hardest hit by the pandemic, including refugees, women, informal workers, and people living in urban areas? What policies have enabled or hindered effective crisis response? And while many of the measures are temporary, what are their implications for social protection in the long term? What are the risks and opportunities for strengthening social protection moving forward? Over this six-part series, we'll be asking, has COVID-19 marked a turning point for social protection? In our ODI study with GIZ, we covered six thematic areas, each with an accompanying paper. Each week of this podcast special series, I'll be joined by the lead author of one of the papers, along with an expert discussant. In this first episode, we're looking at social protection and refugees. Even before COVID-19, refugees were among the most marginalized in their host countries with restrictions on their access to employment, social protection, health care, and other public services. This left them especially exposed to the impacts of the pandemic. They're more likely than host populations to be working in highly impacted sectors. They've experienced job losses and eviction at higher rates and found themselves with fewer resources to rely on as earnings dried up. Efforts to extend or step up provision to refugees include the extension of national social protection policies to cover them, and alignment or integration of humanitarian-led responses with social protection government measures. How effective have these been? What are the emerging lessons, and is this a turning point for extending social protection to refugees in a more permanent fashion? Here to discuss with us today are Jessica Hagenzanker and Andrew Mitchell. Jessica Hagenzanker is Senior Research Fellow at ODI and co-author with Nathalie Boss of the paper, Social Protection Provisions to Refugees During COVID-19, Lessons Learned from Government and Humanitarian Responses. Andrew Mitchell is Senior Social Protection Officer at the Division of Resilience and Solutions at the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR. Jessica and Andrew, welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. Thanks for having me, Francesca.
2: Thanks, Francesca.
1: Andrew, what do we know about the impact of COVID-19 on refugees?
2: What we're seeing basically is a conjunction of three crises. There's a protection crisis. There's a, a health crisis, which is now extending to how vaccinations do or don't roll out in refugee-hosting countries, and, of course, an economic crisis. And I just want to remind everyone, you know, at the start of 2020, there are 80 million people who have been forcibly displaced, and the bulk of these are in low- and middle-income countries where we've seen GDP in decline due to COVID-19. So in terms of the protection crisis, which is important to remember because they have this additional vulnerability compared to nationals or citizens... What we're seeing in the Middle East is there's about 1.1 million Syrian refugees and internally displaced Iraqis who have been pushed into poverty due to COVID. We're also seeing that there are many people who are fleeing conflict and persecution because conflict continues. Due to the border closures um, in, in about 144 countries, there have been problems in terms of refugees seeking asylum. And at least 60 of those countries have made no exemptions for those seeking asylum. We're also seeing increased risk in terms of violence for displaced women and girls, where there was xenophobia and unfavourable views towards refugees before COVID-19. Because of the increased pressure on the economy, this is also increasing that type of xenophobia. So in summary, we've got to deal with all three types of crises and not only trying to, in particular with regards to social protection, look at how do we offset some of the, the social and economic challenges due to COVID, we have to weave in an approach that takes into account this extra dimensionality of protection.
1: Jessica, refugees are typically excluded or underserved from social protection. Where they do exist, what are the types of social protection instruments available to refugees?
3: So there are two main groups of instruments, government-led and humanitarian-led instruments. So on the one hand, refugees may be included in government-led responses, which means that they're eligible for the same benefits as the host population. So for example, legal frameworks in South Africa extend the right to social assistance to every resident, including refugees and asylum seekers. So the important element here is the fact that they extend it to residents, so not to citizens. However, in many countries, only citizens have the right to access government-led social protection. In these cases, we would typically see humanitarian-led responses for refugees. These are instruments which would specifically target refugees and other vulnerable populations, So, for example, um, asylum seekers as well, including sometimes also subgroups of the host population. Some of these humanitarian responses align or are integrated with government responses in terms of their objectives, the program design and or implementation. So to give you one example, Francesca, the UNHCR cash transfer for refugees in Morocco mirrors the government COVID response in terms of its grant size, in terms of duration and delivering mechanism. Other humanitarian responses um, may be set up in parallel, which means they don't align or integrate with government responses.
1: During the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen a high number of social protection adjustments and new instruments adopted in countries worldwide. What efforts, Andrew, have been made to step up social protection provision for refugees? And what are some of the most effective responses you've seen during COVID?
2: There are certain countries where inclusion in COVID-19 responses is is happening. And there are other countries where there's a clear decision not to include refugees. And really this plays out differently in um, developed countries where we know most refugees and asylum seekers on paper have access. There's been a whole series of measures of certain countries, so I'm thinking of Portugal, where they've really added flexibility to administrative processes to access this. In middle-income countries, we see examples like Brazil, that uh, have opened up COVID-19 access in terms of the cash transfers. And this is domestically financed. And we're also seeing in some of the countries in Africa that have nascent systems. And again, I'm thinking of Sudan that also opened up access to refugee and asylum seekers to food assistance. Having said that, and again, it's complicated, we see that the, the ESSN, the major social safety net in Turkey, which was including around 1.5 million refugees before COVID, chose not to include those same refugees in the government COVID-19 response. So really, it's a very context-specific. But again, the way the inclusion agenda was playing out before COVID-19, we see a direct relationship between how COVID-19 social protection responses plays out as well.
1: Jessica, we've just heard from Andrew of different experiences and efforts to extend, um, or indeed not adjust, social protection uh, to to incorporate refugees across different contexts. What are some of the drivers of effective crisis response for refugees, both for humanitarian and government responses? And what are some of the trade-offs governments and other players face? So in our study, we
3: identified a number of drivers of more effective COVID responses. And the most obvious one is maturity of the social protection system. And Andrew just touched upon that as well. For example, Colombia has a mature social protection system. It has existing systems it could draw on, including databases um, and strong local and central government capacity. And as a result of that, Colombia was able to respond very quickly to the COVID crisis. Where the social protection system is more nascent and capacity is more limited, the system will be less effective at meeting the needs of refugees and other vulnerable populations and doing so quickly. The same holds for humanitarian actors in delivering provisions to refugees. So to give you an example, UNHCR Pakistan was able to deliver a cash transfer for the first time, but as this was the first time that they had a cash transfer, setting up the system, including beneficiary databases, took time. As they aligned their cash transfer with ISAS, the government COVID cash transfer, and UNHCR was able to draw on the existing payment delivery system used by the Pakistani government, they were able to speed up part of the response. This brings me to another really important driver, which is coordination between humanitarian development and government actors. Strong, positive and long-standing relationships, open dialogue and ongoing collaboration that existed pre-COVID between international humanitarian development and government actors lead to more effective responses. Policy design is also, of course, critical, including targeting criteria, benefit levels, and duration. And we found that with regards to targeting, requirements placed on refugees in terms of their regularized status, lengths of residence, and so on, may exclude specific groups of refugees, We then receive no support. There's one particular trade-off which came out um, very strongly out of our study, which is the setting of benefit levels. When refugees are included in government responses or when humanitarian um, responses are aligned, benefit levels may not always be adequate for refugees as they often have greater needs or expenses, for example, in terms of housing. And as such, aligning benefit values does not always lead to the most effective outcome for refugees. In setting these benefit values, government and humanitarian actors are faced with, in a way, two competing objectives. One, to make it fair and to reduce social tensions between the host and refugee population, and two, to ensure that all groups meet their basic needs. And this trade-off is not new, it reflects a long-standing tension between humanitarian assistance and government transfers and it's important to be aware of it and to be explicit where to land on this trade-off and why.
1: Andrew, you touched earlier on the question of refugees' eligibility for social protection versus what they receive in practice. We know that social protection only reaches a fraction of refugees. What are some of the factors that determine the differences between eligibility and whether or not we, in fact, receive social protection?
2: So if we focus on where systems are nascent, indeed, there is a a fraction of refugees that are covered. However, I guess in the last five years, and I'm thinking of the, the World Bank investments, the EU trust investments, In some of those countries, we are seeing that you know 10 to 50 percent of the refugee caseload are receiving some, actually, or will or plan to receive some type of social protection benefit, and all of these refugees will be put on the social registry. So in those countries, we wouldn't be calling it a fraction, but we come back to Jessica's point about the adequacy of benefits in terms of well, actually, how much does that cover basic needs? In terms of a difference between having access in policy to different socioeconomic rights that allows access to social protection systems versus the enjoyment of those rights at the local level. And what I mean by that is that refugees actually get the cash transfers, are able to take part in public works or in income-generating activities at the local level. In many countries, there's a difference between that access and enjoyment of rights why there is that difference. And I think Jessica's alluded to that. One of the key drivers is whether the the social protection agencies are present. In many refugee hosting areas of a country, um, it's in a very underdeveloped part of a country where the full social protection system hasn't been rolled out. In many low-income countries, they start in urban centers and then move out to the rural areas for very obvious logistical reasons. And I'm thinking of the very remote area of the Republic of Congo, where the World Bank project is opening up access to a significant percentage of that population group. But the bulk of those people live in a very underdeveloped area on the border of Central African Republic. And the the main challenges there are completely linked to government capacity, logistical access. Um, So it's very challenging in many areas. I think the second area where we have um, problems is also bottlenecks in terms of the identification requirements or administrative requirements, say, for refugees that want to engage in in business and other economic activities. And COVID-19, because of the impact on the functioning of local government, has really further made that a real challenge, even with the best intentions of the government and with people ready to fund that at that local level, it's very difficult to, to meet those requirements. And I think the last key challenge is really linked to a set of protection issues. What I mean by that is even though the government and local government have agreed to open up different social protection programs to refugees, there may be pre-existing social cohesion problems or xenophobia that impacts refugees that want to start productive activities or engage in public works in terms of access to land, in terms of being able to rent land, in terms of being able to access economic infrastructure, and particularly with women who may have had a a more traditional role in the family, trying to empower them to be able to be going out and to take decisions to diversify the way they contribute to family economies. There can be attitudes from host communities that doesn't allow them to move around freely and to engage in these activities. So beyond the The protection dimension we also have to look at different vulnerable groups within the refugees and so women and girls is a very key thing that we really need to look at in terms of some of the bottlenecks
1: um jessica can you tell us a little bit more about what are some of the barriers that stop governments from including refugees in their regular social protection responses so the decision to include refugees is a political
3: one and a lack of political will be a major barrier in all contexts, including high, middle and lower income countries. So refugees are by definition not citizens and not part of the political constituencies, so politicians have little to gain from including refugees. Politicians may also argue that access to benefits could attract more refugees, so that opening up the social protection system is a pull factor And this is a line of argument we've seen all over the world in recent years, despite a lack of evidence for this. But there are some legitimate concerns, particularly for low-income countries where coverage of citizens is also low, Um, and particularly now with the economic shocks as a result of COVID. And in those countries, the inclusion of refugees will be a difficult case to make. For example, in Jordan, discussions have been ongoing for years about the potential inclusion of refugees in the National Social Protection Scheme, um, in the National Social Assistance Scheme, and as a result of COVID, this issue has shifted further down the agenda. It's just not politically viable at the moment. We did find that COVID may have shifted political considerations in some countries. For example, in Colombia, the government did include refugees in their emergency cash response for the first time. Until now, they had never been included in a government cash transfer before. And this was partly because refugees' needs in this time of crisis became much more pressing, but also became much more clearer to policymakers. I would say, though, that despite this being such a major barrier, it doesn't mean it's unsurmountable. Most countries do include refugees, as Andrew also talked about, and they include them for different reasons, including humanitarian concerns, which might outweigh the lack of political will. And development and humanitarian actors can also use financial incentives to overcome some of these political barriers.
1: So Jessica mentioned uh, financial resources as a key enabler. Andrew, what are some of the innovative approaches to financing that you've you've seen in recent years? And has anything changed since the onset of COVID? Is that making a difference?
2: I want to stress, I think, one of the the changes in, in recent years, specifically with social protection, is to really put a pragmatic business case on the table to governments, you know, to support them to respect these commitments that they've made. And I think this is at the heart of the Global Compact on Refugees, which has come out in the last three years, and where there's a lot of effort that's now been put into trying to build that business case and trying to ensure governments can meet some of those political concerns. And so what I mean by that is that when we talk about inclusion of of refugees in government social protection systems, we're talking about an area-based approach that must also scale up coverage to host communities. And normally when we're dealing with governments, the the, the entry point is host communities and and not refugees. This has led, I think, to some of the, the innovative financial mechanisms that are being put in place to help Support governments to take on this extra caseload and to help develop social protection systems in some of the parts of the country that have been traditionally underdeveloped. So, for example, we have the the World Bank IDA Refugee Subwindow mechanism, which basically has targeted. I think it's for social protection. It's targeting around uh, eleven countries now, and what that does is it takes an area-based approach and some of that investment goes to strengthening, for example, the social registry system of of the government, the actual social protection agency in terms of staffing, in terms of some of the delivery mechanisms. And when we look at a split of who receives the benefits, it's clear that many of those benefits favour the host communities and then a, a more minor part of those benefits are received by refugees and and that's the way it should be these governments particularly in many of these refugee sub-window countries are hosting large amounts of refugees in a protracted situation what i mean by that is that they've been there 5 10 15 20 years and the the humanitarian system was never designed for that and they've continued to support this population for long periods of time so it's only just that you know we step up with long-term investments that help them to strengthen the coverage of their system. So again, in terms of COVID-19, I think some of the innovative mechanisms build on these projects. And for example, in some of these projects, they have a mechanism that can be triggered to redistribute funding in terms of emergencies. This is called the CERC mechanism. And so, for example, that was triggered in the, the DRC. From the IDA 18 funds, 50 million US dollars went to Kinshasa to put in place COVID cash transfers for around 250,000 Congolese. Um, The other thing that we're seeing is a linkage between the IDA investments and the World Bank funded Sahel Adaptive Social Protection Program that tries to offer cash top-ups during times of food security crises. So some of the innovative things that we're seeing in in effect is a montage of investment instruments in the same refugee hosting area, covering the needs of both host communities and refugees against an increasing set of different household and widespread shocks. And I think the way that we're seeing this play out in some of those countries in the Sahel is not only the governments, the World Bank, but I think some of the The operational agencies that are supporting some of these initiatives are gaining a lot of experience that we can see how we replicate that in other countries.
1: So the overarching question of this special podcast series is, is COVID-19 a turning point for social protection? And my closing question to you both is, you know, are the ongoing crisis and the crisis responses taken to date, do these present a turning point for the provision of social protection to refugees in hosting countries. Jessica, what are your thoughts? I would not say COVID-19 is
3: a turning point as such, but we have seen some marginal and also symbolic changes in the past year. And we've also learned some very important lessons which will allow actors to build on progress made. So some of the important lessons we've learned is the importance of preparedness for future crises. So that means strengthening the foundations, building systems, forging collaborations. All of these have been extremely useful for the countries that did so already. Another critical lesson is keeping refugees specific needs in mind to design effective responses. So we can't just copy paste responses for refugees. And I think this is something that needs to be repeated again and again. The implementation of responses during the pandemic has highlighted some of the risks as a result of trying to align responses or integrate refugees and government responses, such as differences in need um, and barriers to inclusion in social registries for refugees. And as such, the drive to align or integrate humanitarian assistance and government social protection could be considered with some caution and not be seen as an end goal in itself. And as Andrew emphasized, just now those kind of decisions must always take account of national context. I can finish on a somewhat positive note though. There's definitely been some marginal progress made, and this includes refugees being included in national Socioeconomic and poverty surveys for the first time, and this has symbolic value and shows refugees' needs alongside the host populations. Other examples are some countries removing some barriers to access for refugees, as we've discussed on the podcast, and intensified collaboration between humanitarian, development and government actors. And all of these may contribute to more effective responses in the future.
2: I think a a recurring message that I want to pass during this podcast is that I think that the battleground really is at the country level now. And to simplify it, I think it is potentially a turning point in those countries where pre-existing to COVID-19, the inclusion agenda was opening up. And it is going to be more difficult in those countries where the inclusion agenda was was stalled. There in those countries, it's definitely not an opportunity. So in a way, COVID has, to simplify it, has sort of magnified what was happening with the longer term inclusion agenda in social protection programs before COVID hit. And so what I think pragmatically this means is that we should really focus our efforts on trying to learn the additional lessons from COVID-19. Again, how do you drape different COVID investments on top of other pre-existing investments. How do you expand the use of shock responsive approaches to cover a larger part of the risk landscape? We can focus on learning in those countries where opportunities did open up and perhaps at least in the medium-term response, we can start to prioritise because, again, governments, donors and operational agencies don't have unlimited financing we can prioritize where there is an enabling environment uh, for inclusion to, to scale up working together on an area based approach. There, there's been an interesting dynamic that I think Jessica sort of alluded to, and that's we saw a scaling up of refugees included in the national primary health response. We saw inclusion in certain countries um, where the inclusion agenda was not progressing before. We saw access of refugees taken up into national socioeconomic surveys that were then going to help act as a blueprint for the the medium-term response. And this has definitely opened up conversations with governments where there had been progress in terms of inclusion in the the health system to start to look at other socioeconomic systems. So the final message is there's a lot to do. The COVID-19 impacts have accelerated or further blocked the long-term inclusion agenda. And so it'd be interesting to work together to identify those countries that we can help build back better whilst putting additional resources to, to open up area-based inclusion.
1: Thank you, Andrew and Jessica, for, for the very rich um, exchange on one of the most pressing matters of our times.
3: Really enjoyed the discussion today.
2: Yeah, I just reiterate really, right. it's been a, a fantastic exchange and a, a really important issue moving ahead.
1: We'll post links to key resources on this topic in the show notes of this episode, and you can find the ODI research series at odi.org. Stay tuned for the next episode in our series where we look at social protection implementation and delivery and ask, what are the opportunities and risks of innovations made since the onset of COVID-19 for system capacity and response to future crises?
0: The Social Protection Podcast is a production of socialprotection.org, which is the place to go online for free information, research and community on all things social protection. This week, we have a special request. We're running our annual survey to learn more about how you use the socialprotection.org knowledge platform, what you think of our products, including this podcast, and how we could better support your work. The survey is open until the 5th of July. It only takes five minutes to fill out, and you'll find the link in the show notes. You can follow us on Twitter at sp_gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and maybe even leave a review.